Welcome to a Mona Moment, a podcast hosted by the Museum of Northwest Art in Laconner, Washington. The Museum of Northwest Art connects people with the art, diverse cultures, and environments of the Northwest. It also enriches lives in our diverse community by fostering essential conversations and encouraging creativity through exhibitions and educational activities that explore the art of the Northwest. On November 17th, Mona hosted coffee with surge artists and scientists as a part of their fall programming. This included presentations on the integration of art and science by Rachel Lodge, Cynthia Camlin, and Clarissa Callison, as well as a question and answer with other contributing artists and scientists, including Suze Wolf, Alice Dubiel, and Roger Fuller. We hope you enjoy this Mona moment. Well, first of all, my name is Joanna Seitz, and I'm the director of the Museum of Northwest Art. So we're really, really happy that you guys are here. Um, Surge has been a wonderful experience for us in our community. And every time we've had an event or had some sort of reception, it's just wonderful to see how many people come out, how the show has been welcomed, and the fact that the show is so incredible. It not only has a message to give, that we're all sort of seeing, understanding what's happening around us. But also, the artists were able to, at the same time, create wonderful standalone pieces of art. So, you know, you can enjoy the show for the message, you can enjoy the show for all the artists that have done wonderful work. And so, it's really great because today we're having a uh, coffee, as you know, with both the artists and the scientists. So, basically, I'm going to just sort of start out by introducing. I'm starting to ring here. Um, starting by starting out by introducing the artists, um, and then we'll kind of go through the program, which is on your list, I believe you have it, and then we're saving all of our questions for the end, because that way you'll have a chance to, you know, to talk to everyone who's been up here. And that is not only the presenters, we're going to start out with the artist presenters, but then you're going to have a moderator come in, but then you're also going to have some other people sitting up here who are also participating and ready to answer questions. So let's get started here. I don't have everybody memorized. First names, but not your bios. So we're going to start out with presentations by three artists. One is Rachel Lodge. She's a Seattle-based artist, and she's exploring the carbon cycle through her hand-drawn science-based images and animation sequences. Next, we're going to have Cynthia Camden. It's ringing. Is it ringing in your ears? It's ringing in mine. Whoa, or maybe it's just me. Uh, Cynthia Camlin. She's a professor of painting and drawing at Western Washington, and she explores the environmental and geological change through abstracted forms. Amazing sort of forms, we love it. Clarissa Kelson is a Pacific Northwest sculptor, installation artist, primarily doing post-consumer recycled materials. So all three of these artists, we're going to give you a formal few moments of presentation. Then when they are done, oh, not me, one of Sturge's contributing scientists, Roger Fuller, he's going to lead a discussion. Roger is the environmental system ecologist who leads the Habitat Stewardship and Restoration Program at the Medela Bay Estuary Research Reserve. Big breath. Um, and he is, his expertise in wetland coastal ecology, habitat restoration, and climate change impacts our habitats. You know, I should say each time I read one of these names, I've become more familiar with who these people are, and we are so fortunate that they're here and that they're willing to share with us. 
each one of them has such a strong commitment to what is happening around us. So this Q&A, please be prepared to ask questions. Um, and then, then we have two other panel members. One is Suze Wolf, and she just recently was an artist in residence in Capitol Reef National Park. And her subject matter shares a theme of human impact on the environment. And then Dave Peterson is another one of Surge's contributing scientists. And he's a professor at the University of Washington School of Environmental and Forest Sciences. His, his, excuse me, the effects of the climate change and fire, so he has been involved in conducting research around throughout the Western North America, and he's published over 230 scientific articles, and is a contributing author of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and was a co-recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. So as I said, we have a great group. And our final participant on the panel is Alice Tupelio, who has created an extensive body of work featuring paintings, prints, interactive conceptual work, concerns ecology and the politics of representation. So I think you know you can understand why I didn't memorize all of the contributions <laughs> these people have made. You know, I'm used to, and I'm not putting anybody down, but I'm used to having a single artist and talking sort of at length on what they're, why they created their work. But the amazing thing about what you have today are these profound experts. So once again, we're gonna start, we're gonna start with Rachel, and then you'll have your chance to do your questions part of this exhibit um, here at the museum. I'm just really grateful to have the opportunity to be here with the other artists and scientists. And my partner is Dave Peterson. Um, it's been really great um, working with him. Okay, so as, as Joanne said, I've been working for the last several years on imagery that has to do with the carbon cycle and climate change. And for this exhibit, um, the piece that I've done is an animation with two images above and below on forest carbon and fire in the Skagit Basin Forest. Normally that piece is showing on this wall, projected from that projector. So for today, um, we need to reorient the projector in order to do the presentation today. But as soon as this event is over, you'll be able to see the animation on this screen. So unfortunately, I can't show you all of it as I'm walking through right now, but you'll see a couple of pieces of it. If you haven't already, some of you may have already seen it. Um, so just a little bit about how I got interested in this and how I kind of got to this point with, with participation in the museum. I've been actually really interested in and also concerned about climate change for a pretty long time. Um, and from uh, the classes I've taken and so on, I had a pretty good understanding of the way the climate system works and carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas that makes the atmosphere warmer than we want it to be. So I was pretty clear about that. But as I began to kind of dig into it a little bit, I realized that on some of the actual mechanics of this, I was actually pretty fuzzy. So like, people were banding about all these terms, like, you know, car uh, carbon pollution, carbon, uh, uh, carbon footprint, um, decarbonization. When I would think about it, I would realize I was actually a little, not totally clear about what those things meant. Carbon was sort of an abstraction to me, even carbon dioxide a little bit. So I wanted to start sort of digging into that. Um, and um, in doing this, um, 
wanted to just kind of get into the actual kind of root phenomena of this a little bit. What actually underlies this problem that we're all talking about with carbon? Um, and so that meant that I went back to have to kind of refresh my high school chemistry and botany one and all of that. And it was amazing how much I forgot <laughs> um, with all of that. Um, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has entirely to do with the cycle of photosynthesis on the planet. Um, combustion of fossil fuels, which are basically ancient plants, and that's essentially like running photosynthesis in reverse, so that the carbon dioxide that was absorbed in photosynthesis is then sent back out again when you burn it. Um, and I was kind of going, gee, well, that's all pretty interesting. Um, and I was struck by how hazy I had been in my understanding of all these things. So I really wanted to just kind of dig into it visually because I'm a visual person. So I, wanted, I began actually making images of carbon dioxide. And this image you can sort of see, trying to imagine, what are we talking about here? You can think of those little, the little whirly guys as carbon atoms. Um, the issue being, I think, in, in communicating about climate and trying to understand it, some of these the root phenomena are not in the scale where we can perceive them. They're either much too small or too large, and they happen over much too short a time or too long of a time for us to be able to literally see them. And it makes it difficult even to think about them. So I got interested in what can I do to just kind of actually drill into some of this and, and, and help myself in the first instance. I want to just try to visualize this. What are we talking about here? And kind of bring these things more into imagination. So that's really what a lot of the work is, that I've done has been about since then. And so I started asking questions like, where does carbon come from? There we go. Well, it actually comes from the inner processes of stars across the universe, which is pretty cool. And you know, people say, you know, we are stardust and all that stuff. It's actually true. <laughs> uh, it seems a little woo-woo, but it's actually the case. That is where all the elements in the universe come from, is these, I, I, I mean, I'm looking at Roger, but you know, essentially fusion processes in the inside of stars. So, um, and carbon, in fact, is pretty amazing stuff. It's the fourth most abundant element in the universe. And because we've had photosynthesis going on in varying degrees on the planet for so long, there's a huge amount of carbon distributed all over the planet, geologically and in all the living things. You might remember carbon is the element of life. I had sort of knew that, but I kind of forgot what that actually meant. Basically, anything that's ever been alive has got carbon in it, including us, and plants especially. This has been going on for millions and billions of years with carbon moving around the planet in geologic time. Um, and so these jars here that you can see, um, I've kind of kind of collecting these basically carbon-based materials, which is not anything very complicated. You know, I have a jar of powdered graphite, which is 100% carbon, and you know, leaves, which are maybe let's say 40-50% carbon. Uh, the apple that we eat, carbohydrates. You'd be amazed how long it took me to pick, to figure out what that actually means. <laughs> <That's laughs> carbohydrate, carbon plus water. Uh. <laughs> uh, and Homo sapiens, of course, the human body is about 18% carbon, which comes from the carbohydrates that we eat, which originate with the carbon dioxide in the air that plants absorb through photosynthesis. So at that point, I was totally fascinated. I thought, this is just really awesome. And so where else can I go in thinking about this? And with relation to climate change, I found that imaginatively, it opens up a really big space for thinking over a much longer period of time and more freely kind of about this issue that is so kind of vexing and hard to think about. So I just started following, kind of following the molecules around here. You've got carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, a, a water molecule, and a carbon dioxide molecule. 
And you can think about carbon, back, carbon cycling in the ocean. You have a lot of photosynthesis in the ocean, both plankton and seaweed. There's seaweed in that picture. Carbon dioxide and oxygen, all those sort of simply indicated there. Um, a lot of photosynthesis in the ocean. You have little critters, little zooplankton, eating the, phyto, the phytoplankton photosynthesizing, and then these are some little copepods that eat the plankton and the carbon that was in, sort of like House of Jack built, the carbon that was photosynthesized by the phytoplankton ends up in the zooplankton. Um, salmon and whales eat the copepods. Over geologic time, the waste from these organisms uh, ends up at the seafloor, and over millennia, actually, that is the source of petroleum. Um, here's another picture just for fun. Here's some krill feeding the phytoplankton. So before this exhibit, I had been working through a bunch of imagery like this. I already had a lot of this that I was already working on, but then when, when Surge came up as an opportunity, I was really, I thought this is really great. I had a chance to drill into this a little further in this area where we all live, thinking about the same cycling process in the forests and in the environment that is, is ours where we live. I had some short animation clips, but I hadn't really finished uh, anything. So this was a real chance at the exhibit to go deeper and work with this kind of imagery. And it was great to work with Dave, because he's, you know, as you heard, he's, a, he's a, an amazing forest expert. And he was able to kind of coach me and correct me on some of the science of what's happening in our forests here, especially with respect to fire, which I'll kind of get into for a second. The Skagit forests, like all forests around the world, are an incredibly important carbon sink, meaning that the standing trees in the forest are about, the tree is about 50% carbon, a conifer. So the trees that are standing there are just literally you know, about half made out of carbon. There's also a huge amount of carbon in the soils and forests. So these are really important reservoirs of carbon that keep it from, help to kind of keep it out of the atmosphere where carbon dioxide is a wonderful thing, but only up to a certain point. If you have too much, it gets too hot. So our forests are really helping us. Um, so with all of that, I ended up with about a seven and a half minute animation, which I can't show you during the talk, but you'll see it if you're still here when we're all done, you'll see it on the screen here. And it was on two screens. Um, and I'll just say that if you, if any of you who know me, you would kind of wonder at me spending time doing animation because I feel like probably some of the rest of you, I have a terrible love-hate relationship with the computer. <laughs> and feel like I'm already spending way too much time looking at screens. And I was actually a little bit ambivalent about even inviting anyone in the museum to spend more time looking at a screen because I feel like a lot of us are doing too much of that. But that said, um, because, because, sorry, um, because climate change and the carbon cycle are both about cycling and things that are dynamic and about transition over time and things that change over time, the time element seems really important to understanding the story. And you know, it's a visual element, so I can, you can visualize little tiny objects and also visualize how they move, which seemed really interesting to explore. So because of that, I ended up doing animation. Um, and the two screens was because I think also one of the things that makes it difficult to really grasp some of the climate stuff is the relationship between microphenomena and macrophenomena. So like, you know, what is what's going on inside a leaf have to do with the atmosphere? Uh, what does what comes out of your tailpipe have to do with the atmosphere? There's these large scale and small scale phenomena. So my notion was, let me see if I can kind of show both at the same time using two screens. And you can see whether it was effective or not. 
Um, okay, so then I thought I would talk just a little bit about how I actually do the animations because people are sometimes interested in that. Um, everything that, that goes into the animation starts with the drawing by hand on paper, so I'm not drawing anything in the computer. I'm doing it all by hand on paper and then scanning it. So there's a little sequence of the animation about a tanker going across maybe in front of a refinery at Anacortes. Um, so here's the tanker, and that's just on paper. And then I scan it into Photoshop, and here you can see on the, on the screen, it, it, the way I drew it, it looks like it's running slightly downhill. And that was kind of typical. There'd be something in the drawing that I'd have to fix in Photoshop. At least one thing, usually more. Many, sometimes many things that I have to adjust. So there it is with the background removed. So now I can put it into the software and make it move around just by itself. <laughs> and this is what the Adobe After Effects software looks like that I use. And you can see the red bar there. In, it, there's a timeline that everything sits on. And the red bar is the, is the tanker. Um, that little spiral in the upper right is the motion path for one of the carbon dioxide molecules. It's highlighted there because, it, let's say, if I was working on that. And so everything is on its own motion path that you set, and it can be extremely time consuming, but also pretty cool. And then here's the video editing software. So I have maybe, I'm not sure how many of these, 18 or 19 different animation clips that are all edited together into one video timeline. So there you can see on the bottom there, you can see the tanker kind of pasted in with the clips that come before and after it in the, in the finished animation. And those little kind of cross-hatch things like little band-aids, those are showing where the cross uh, fades are. And then here, so here's what that little sequence actually looks like. And this clip uh, is not quite the finished. The finish is slightly more refined. You can see here comes the tanker coming across. And if you watch carefully, when you see the smokestack, you can see that I still didn't have the timing quite right when the carbon dioxide and uh, black carbon, it's a single black carbon atom. See that? It's not perfectly timed. So I had to fool around with that quite a bit. That's just an example of kind of what's involved in getting animation. I had to think about, okay, what is this, how does this stuff actually behave? How does it move? And then you can see, you know, I had all my, my, my molecules were all kind of clogged up there in the right hand corner. I had to get them, had to get them sort of sorted out and figure out, you know, what's my intention for these? Where do I want them to go with what happens next? Um, okay, so here, I don't have time to show you the animation on this, but um, in thinking about what some of the issues are, challenges in doing this kind of science-based artwork stuff, um, one of them for sure has to do with dealing with accuracy and complexity when you're trying to kind of suggest something. And that would be a problem just in sort of ordinary illustration too. Um, so I'm trying to get something across to folks without confusing them and that, and without oversimplifying because past a certain point you can create a misimpression about what's happening. So in that upper screen there, the little cluster toward the middle is a glucose molecule in the process of forming. And I'm accurate in getting there in the sense that I've, I have, if you were watching animation, you would have already seen six molecules of water coming in from the upper right, excuse me, upper left, and six molecules of carbon dioxide coming in through the stomata at the lower right, which is correct, that's the formula, making one molecule of glucose and six molecules of oxygen exiting out through the leak into the air. All of that is right. But in terms of what happens in between there, I mean, what I'm doing is kind of taking these molecules apart and scrambling the atoms and then putting them back together to make a glucose molecule. There's all kinds of stuff that happens in there. It's really complicated. It was way past anything that I could understand and far past anything that I would have been able to show. So, you know, you have to think a lot about what is it, what's the takeaway 
what am I what am I hoping that people will take from this along with whatever visual interest or you know curiosity or whatever um, trying to not sort of mess it up so people are confused or, or getting this impression um, Um, similar issue with the fire, um, of course that's the climate issue with forests here in the Northwest, or one of the issues. Um, and again, question of what to show. Um, you know, talking with Dave, one of the big intermediaries in actually causing a fire, not always but often, is bark beetles that get a toehold in the trees because of drought, which weakens the trees. And I actually really wanted to kind of go to the bark beetles, and I had pictures, and I was all ready to like animate the bark beetle chewing its way through you know, the inside of it, making all those little tracks, because they make really amazing tracks. But I couldn't get to it, so I just skipped it. I left that out. Fortunately, um, Suze and Clarissa and some of the other artists did a really beautiful job of indicating that, so you can see that here in the exhibit um, about the bark beetles. They did an amazing job of making art out of that. Um, here, basically what I ended up just trying to show was the idea of combustion, so as to say that the carbon dioxide that went into the trees through photosynthesis slowly over time is now coming out a lot faster than the fire. Although a lot of it actually stays behind in things that don't burn typically, it's not like it all comes out. And I'm and here again, the questions of what you, what you hope people will understand or feel or take away, I realized that it's possible to have perhaps you know, misrepresented this a little bit in the sense that perhaps I'm <coughs> suggesting that a forest fire is inherently a total disaster, which is not necessarily the case scientifically. I think the answer probably would be it kind of depends where the fire is and how hot it was and for how long and, and where all of those kinds of things. Um, so just about to wrap up, but just to talk also a little bit about the whole question of kind of emotion, which I really thought about a lot with this, and feelings with climate change, because I think that, you know, it's a really tough topic. It can be really scary. It can be sad, and also for some of us, be guilt-inducing. So there are a lot of emotions associated with all this that I, have, you know, as I say, I've thought about a lot, and I've also dealt with personally a lot. And so in, in putting this together, I was very conscious of sort of probably trying to keep the emotions within a certain register, at least, you know, not, not too intense. Um, and in fact, you know, on a personal level, on a personal level, I was probably holding back a little bit if I were not trying to put some scientific understanding into part of what I was doing. I might have gone to a much more sort of directly emotional space, which might have involved more abstract imagery and probably something that was a little heavier if I had just given myself lessons to do that. But I, I didn't do that here. Um, and partly because I feel like, in fact, part of what we have in our natural systems is the capacity for recovery. And that's something that we need to look to and strengthen. So um, at the end of the video, um, I do have some imagery that indicates a forest recovery. You've got trees coming back after the fire, which is in fact what happens. And that carbon dioxide is then being absorbed again. Um, and so then I think I'll just I'll end with this image um, to sort of suggest that, and this is not, not in the animation, this is from something else that I've done. Um, you know, what we all do really matters. And with the climate change issue, um, the nice thing about it is that if you do anything that helps with respect to the carbon dioxide molecules, you're helping everybody on the whole planet because it's a, because it's a planetary thing, and it's 
still, I think, I hope, within our power to restore. So, thanks very much. as well. Um, I'm Cynthia Camlin, if you didn't catch that. Um, and uh, just quickly, um, to show some previous work, um, for most of my career, my work in painting and drawing has been exploring environmental and geological change through abstracted forms in drawing and painting. Several series of work um, react to ice sheet collapse and glacial melt with these complex structures that could also suggest architecture or mathematical pattern. Um, kind of, this piece, water fragment, is like a rigid structure, grid-like, but underneath the suggestion of melt and warmth and movement. It's inside. Um, to me, these are pictures of a system interconnected but cracking. The images of ice, but it could be a human system. Architecture, the built environment. Um, also government or public policy, economic systems. Social systems can be brittle, um, like the built environment is, um, with paradigms and principles that break because they cannot bend. So ecological systems generally are on longer time frames or more adaptable than human cultural systems. When we think about adaptation in a time of climate change, it requires flexibility, the ability to think and act in different ways. feedbacks can appear like disaster. Fire, hurricane, flood, devastations of habitat, drought. And even if we and our families are lucky and protected, the images from elsewhere can be terrifying. Um, and we'll do anything to protect ourselves, our families, our property. We're ready to fight, to defend, without understanding the systems that cause the catastrophes or how we contribute to them. When we look at this map that the Skagit Climate Science Consortium um, scientists uh, created, it's interactive, it's on their website, um, with predicted flood levels and scenarios in Skagit County, it's a bit like these other images of disaster 
If we allow ourselves to be sensitive to the information and take it in, it can be frightening. The tendency is to want to fight, to build a wall between ourselves and the threat, a physical wall or an emotional wall. I never expected to make a large environmental piece until Surge, actually. Um, when I learned about Surge in its first stages at MANA in 2015, my collaborator Heidi Epstein and I originally got together and conceived of this environmental installation living with water as a wall. Um, not a wall to protect us like a flood wall or a dike, but a, a simulated wall of water, of translucent green fabric. We would put the wall of water in the land, in an agricultural field or a parking lot or backyard, and um, it would be just a line, a line um, installed at a given height showing the level of water predicted in a major flood event at that site. We worked with Larry Wasserman, Alan Hamlet, and Carol McElroy at the Skagit Climate Science Consortium to understand the data and consider the sites. And for Surge 2015, which happened just on a weekend, um, what we showed was this visual sketch, um, a proposal for a possible environmental art piece. There was no time to actually produce such a project. So in, for Search 2018, with a third artist collaborator, Jasmine Valandani, we were given a whole year to think, plan, raise funds, and fabricate. We did grant applications. We bought and dyed many fabric samples. Um, with all this time for thinking and tests, we realized that living with water needed to be not just an insertion of a line into the landscape. It needed to be an experience of public interaction and immersion. Instead of a wall or a line, the project became a room, a room of water that you could walk into and enter inside of. We were still taking an abstraction and putting it into real places at actual size but now you could walk into it, a place. It was not a disaster, it was beautiful and safe. But in that symbolic space, you could confront a reality that is difficult, even terrible. You could imagine it. The experience of entering touches the senses. There's a kind of wonder as you imagine water levels that are very high right here in this place. The photographer Charles Viles is responsible for a lot of our images and for the slideshow that you see in the installation down, downstairs and we're really grateful for his help. A room of water in a place where it does not belong, or does it? All along, we faced resistance to the difficult information we were communicating. It was nearly impossible to find property owners who were willing to cite our project on their land, even for one day. 
As abstract and beautiful and safe as it is, the visual impact of the project was very clear to our neighbors in Skagit Valley. Our cities and towns and farms and infrastructure since European settlement are not designed for living with water. <clears throat> it was not until we started to reach out to nonprofits who share the goals of sustainability that we began to hear, yes, we would like to work with you. <laughs> Our installation on Skagit Land Trust land, uh, Barney Lake area, um, was scheduled for Skagit Water Weeks. It was rained out, that particular installation. <laughs> it was too muddy for us to actually get in and do it. But we um, hope to revisit that site at a later event after the installation at Mona. We are all vulnerable, and some communi communities are more vulnerable than others. Uh, Low-income communities, communities of color, are often on the front lines of climate change, but encountering its effects disproportionately. Citing the project at the Burlington Edison Back to School Fair in August was less about finding a place that will have 10 feet of water in a major flood event and more about engaging a wide audience to interact with the piece, whether or not they're used to going to art museums and looking at artwork. Jasmine led an art activity working with children dipping pieces of paper into watercolors and then Heidi and I were encouraging the families to come in and come all the way into the, to the room and just look around and experience what it felt like. The day settled into a fine drizzle. <laughs> the, uh, the walls of simulated water getting heavier and heavier with water. <laughs> Maven Park is actually on a piece of higher ground where flooding will not reach um, 10 feet, most likely, in a major flood event. Ordinarily, we're trying to install the piece where water is predicted to be at least that high, which is, there are plenty of places. Um, in the case of the museum, installation and the back to school fair, the piece is more symbolic, giving the experience of the scale of 10 feet of water wherever that's predicted to happen. So is it possible to visualize living with water with open-eyed awareness instead of fear, with a sense of flexibility instead of hopelessness or panic, flight or fight? Living with water is an attempt to visualize what the science tells us to imagine the effects of climate change, not to flinch and turn away, but to be open enough to let the information in. I'm just gonna show you just a couple of other things going on. Since the opening of Surge, I've been involved in several other related activities. Um, a show of my paintings about coral reef systems and warming oceans, citifying oceans, is at the Janssen Art Center in Linden right now. And then you may have seen the Whatcom Museum exhibition, Endangered Species, that's up right now and will be up through, through January, I believe. Um, artists on the front line of biodiversity. So that show has a um, work by 52 different international artists 
and weekly programs. And um, I've been teaching an art and ecology course at Western that um, we brought Brandon Valachet, one of the endangered species artists, to Bellingham for a week of interactions this fall, including um, field experiences with my students, um, capturing in, uh, invasive bullfrog tadpoles in a pond, And, um, and since Brandon's visit, we've, we've planted native trees along a fish-bearing creek. We've learned how to make acorn flour from native Gary Oaks. And in this show that's at Western Gallery right now called Modest Forms of Biocultural Hope, I um, created this changing collaborative project space with my students called Salish Wonder Room which is changing every week. And it's kind of a cabinet of curiosities um, where students are tracking their um, discovery about um, organisms, field study, indigenous practices, and contemporary art. And the question that we're asking in the Salish Wonder Room is, what if we understood the universe not as a collection of objects to be studied, collected, preserved, analyzed, but as a communion of subjects? What if we uh, saw other species not only as objects, but as living beings who are themselves holders of knowledge? You may have read a New York Times magazine article this fall, Losing Earth. Did you read it? Um, it described how a video in the 1970s of a hole in the ozone layer helped to mobilize massive political change. The banning of ozone-depleting chemicals, right? So the author of that article, Nathaniel Rich, wrote, the ozone hole had moved the public, because though it was no more visible than global warming, people could be made to see it. They could watch it grow on the video. An abstract atmospheric problem, he writes, had been reduced to the size of the human imagination. It had been made just small enough and just large enough to break through. Human, social, political, economic systems can be very rigid, a wall, a wall against science, even against what we can see with, with our own eyes and feel in our bodies. Change can seem impossible until it happens. <laughs> Sometimes very suddenly a new image a new truth breaks through. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to skip this complicated slide thing um, and honor that um, screen time. So you're just going to look at this pretty picture while I talk, okay? <laughs> So, 
I'm guessing that um, most of you in this room woke up between sheets. How many people woke up between sheets this morning? <laughs> most everybody, okay. Now I'm guessing also that almost everybody in this room has taken a science class. Hands, science class? Yeah, okay, right. So, and then I suspect there's also a few overachievers that have taken a lot of science classes. <laughs> um, my last science class was in 1989, almost 30 years ago. Um, so, which is kind of unbelievable. And I did enjoy my science. Um, but I found myself um, becoming an artist. So why did I ask you about your bed sheets and science? Yeah, okay, we're gonna get there. It's gonna be a little bit of a circle, a little bit of chaos, but we're gonna get there. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about, um, about my process and how taking science and turning it into a visual, tactile, visceral experience for me. So, Graphs and scientific papers and deep research isn't my gig. Like it just, it, I can't get there. Um, I can appreciate it and admire it, but it doesn't, doesn't draw me in. But what does draw me in is visual things. I see, I look, I feel. Those are the things that inspire me. I don't necessarily make linear connections, which often is the elements in science, is a linear connection. So while I was traveling for a residency a few years ago, um, I was traveling through an area where that was highly forested, beautiful, just forest everywhere you could see. Um, and most of it was this beautiful dark green. But then there were these patches, these swaths of like dark brown. And you know, it's autumn now, so we see those little bits of like orange that are so beautiful. This was not that. This was these sections of dead trees. So somewhere in the back of my head, um, I remember people talking about beetle die-off, okay? And it had been one of those things that I had heard and I had kind of filed as, that's really depressing and I can't think about that, putting that in the file. So, but here I am, I'm seeing these images, I'm seeing this, this actual representation. And what, what that made me do is want to have more information. So along came this perfect opportunity of search, and I got to work with um, the scientist um, David Peterson also, um, and got to learn more about what was causing these big dead swaths of forest. So um, one of the first conversations I have with Dave is he asks me if I know what a beetle gallery is. Okay, so I'm thinking tiny artwork and really well-dressed beetles. <laughs> so, <laughs> not what he was talking about. Um, so with the assistance of David and um, Google, I started looking up beetle galleries. And what did I find? I found these beautiful, intricate, complex, amazing images that are created by the beetles burrowing into the wood. 
Now, I remember like having experiences with um, these pieces of artwork, these little nature pieces of artwork when I was a child, but I didn't have a name for them. Nobody said that's a beetle gallery and that was caused by you know, a pine beetle. So things are connecting, we're making circles with the page, my high technology here. <clears throat> so we've got the visual of those dead trees and we've got those intricate patterns and that's gonna take me back to more conversations with Dave and Google, the internet. Um, pine bark beetles are a tiny hard-shelled black beetle that is only about the size of a grain of rice. So tiny little things, couldn't even wear clothes. <laughs> They are a natural part of our forest environment. And in a balanced ecology, the beetles would only feed off of weaker trees, creating room for, creating a natural thinning process to foster new, the development of new trees. However, with our global climate change and the changing temperatures, those natural checks and balances have got out of whack. Sounds a little bit like a government we're familiar with also. <laughs> because of the warmer temperatures, um, the beetles no longer experience a natural die-off. Um, so with the colder temperatures, the beetles would die back, the population would die back. So as those temperatures have raised, the beetles no longer die back. And what they do is there's a population explosion. And now those beetles are destroying large swaths of very healthy forests. The pine bark beetle has killed approximately 140,000 acres of forest in the last 15 years. Which numbers, okay, here we go again with the numbers. We talk about billions and thousands and what does that mean? 140,000 acres of forest is roughly the size of Montana. So huge. Again, that visual connection. Okay, so let's circle back to those bed sheets that you woke up in this morning. Okay. So sheets are this kind of universally connected thing. We looked around the room, almost everybody woke up in sheets. Almost everybody in this room was created on sheets. <laughs> Most likely you were born on sheets and you will more than likely die on sheets. So they are this thing that we completely take for granted that actually connects all of us throughout our entire lives. So my work is based in materiality, which is a fancy art term for I'm inspired by the stuff I make art out of. So instead of spending a lot of time sketching and drawing and thinking, what I do is I gather stuff. I gather stuff and I live with that stuff and I try and, and then it takes me to the research and I try and figure out what it's trying to tell me. So my current work, um, the current medium that I've been using a lot of is recycled textiles. Now I came to using recycled textiles from that emotional sense looking at um, old pieces of embroidery and handiwork and thinking about the connection, the time that someone spent into this and how those beautiful pieces are passed down, you know, and then further on to like the bed sheets that I was talking about. So it was an emotional path. But 
you know, then I went to the trusty computer and Google again. Did you know that um, the second largest environmental burden right now is the manufacturing and disposal of waste textiles right now? So, so I can't read my notes there. <laughs> so when I was thinking about, when I think about environmental concerns, I tend to go to that petroleum products, carbon footprint. I did not think about my genes, okay? But in the US alone, 15 billion tons of textile waste ends up in the landfill each year. And I wish I had a visual for 15 billion tons, but it's a lot, right? So when those textiles end up in the landfill, even the natural ones, they cannot decompose naturally. So as they decompose, they produce methane gas, which raises our global temperatures. So, you know, methane gas, I, I thought it was about cow farts. <laughs> but actually, it's also about that old navy t-shirt that you threw in the garbage. Okay, so we've got sheets, and we've got these beetles chewing on trees, and we've got pretty designs. And how do they, how do they connect? The methane gas from the textiles that are dumped is creating, is contributing to the rising global temperatures, which is allowing the populations of the pine beetles to explode and to create dead forests the size of Montana. Now that is hugely simplified and probably even insulting to our scientists, but it, for me, it brought it down into this concrete thing. This, this, I can understand this, and how can I be a piece of it? And it opened the door for me to learn more. And um, please ask our scientists for more of the details. So, through seeing and um, visceral, visceral experiences is what brought me to the science. And the, which is basically the essence of, I think, what the SURGE project is about. It's about taking that data and those things that are sometimes that are hard to access, that are scary to access, and they're to bring it into a different form, into a form that we can relate to. Because we are, some of us are visual, some of us are auditory, some of us love those forms and those charts. So I created the piece, um, Unbalanced Trails, and it is, for me, it is a memento mori um, to our lost trees, to our lost forests. When the die-offs happen initially, they are these kind of brown, brownish, orange, dead looking places, but over time, the foliage falls down, um, which increases the heat and risk for forest fires and, and ground. But as the sun has bleached them out, those forests actually become kind of white skeletal forms. So that was part of my inspiration for the forms there. All of the, um, the forms, which I refer to as liminals, and liminals is a it's a concept that I've been exploring in my work for a while. 
now. Um, liminal space refers to that kind of that in-between space, the thing, the space that is not here and is not there. Um, my favorite liminal space is in the car when you got home but you're not ready to go inside. Um, also refers to the spaces that we have in therapy. It's this in-between space. And part of what I'm doing with my artwork is trying to create that space, that place where we can step in between worlds and explore. All of the forms are created from discarded bedding. So there's the sheets, and back to the sheets. Um, all of the coloring on the sheets was produced from forest plant material and fungus and lichen that I collected while, while hiking in the forest. The color was imbued into the fabric through heat and pressure. And then there was a lot of laborious stuffing. A lot of the work that I do has a, is very repetitive. It has a lot of single objects. There's a lot of time involved in it. And so what is that? So I'm, I'm crazy and I watch too many Netflix. No, <laughs> crazy part, yes. Um, but for me, one of the ways that I am able to deal with my human experience and my, my fears, as we've talked about those things that like, that freezes up, is through repetitive actions. It's through the meditative quality of stuffing 49 of those liminals back there. It's a place for my brain to rest. It's a place for my brain to meditate. It's a place for my brain to, to digest that science and to think about those complicated ideas. So, our experience here as humans on this rotating rock is really complicated. It's really complicated and it's intense. Nothing is as simple as good and bad or ugly and beautiful as we learned with the carbon cycle. It's really complicated. Everything has lots of different factors that are involved. As one thing recedes, like we can't say all forest fires are bad. We can't say, we can't make sweeping statements. Um, as one thing recedes, other things benefit and grow. The death of the trees allow more sunlight to reach the undergrowth, encouraging other species to grow and different things to flourish. The forest fires actually um, allow the seeds of the lodgepole pine to break open and germinate. The destructive beetles, you know, are these little enemy beetles. They create this, they leave this beautiful calling card, this truly intricate, unique image that has inspired so much artwork up here. And there are some actual physical examples of it also, which are worth seeing. So again, we are, we create, we are, ugh, Breathe. Okay. <laughs> we have the ugly and we have the beautiful. And we have the devastating and we have the joyful. We are created on those sheets and we die on those sheets. We have to figure out how to hold those two concepts at the same time. 
And it's a really, it's a challenge. We have to allow heartbreaking devastation to exist next to unfathomable beauty. My hopes in talking with you and in creating this piece is that you can find a different way into getting more information about science or doing more about with science and global change. Allow yourself to go a different route um, and find your way there. And hopefully in that, it will also help us hold those very challenging concepts. Thank you. Thank you for uh, all of those wonderful presentations. Can you hear me? Is this going? Okay, great. We're going to now shift into a little bit of a time of, of uh, discussion amongst the panel up here and talking a little bit more about the, the interaction of the scientists and the artists and how this whole process of bringing this, this artwork together unfolded. And I think uh, first maybe we'll start with those of us who, who are doing formal presentations, kind of introduce ourselves so you know who we are and, and our role in this, this process a little bit more. Um, so I'll start. I'm uh, the, uh, one of the scientists who was part of this whole process. I'm, my name's Roger Fuller, and I work with the Padilla Bay National Estuarine Research Reserve just up the road here. And I've uh, worked um, um, with Western Washington University. I was at, uh, taught some classes up there for a number of years and, and did some research on various aspects of estuaries and floodplains. And I worked for about a dozen years with the Nature Conservancy based in the Mount Vernon office here uh, on a number of different things related to habitat restoration and science and research related to habitats. And so I'm really, as a scientist, I'm very much interested in how <coughs> ecosystems work. And that's kind of my focus as a scientist is on on estuaries and tides, uh, tidal areas in particular, because for me they're really fascinating because you have the land and the river and the tide, the ocean, all meet in one place. And so it's kind of an ecosystem that's, that's sort of like the, a, a seam that joins all these different kinds of, of, of uh, systems. They all come together in that one place. So it's a really dynamic place. And of course, river deltas are where, and coastal areas are where a lot of us as humans like to live. So there's a, a big concentration of people in these coastal areas and on river deltas and in river floodplains. And so there's this intermix of, of, uh, of uh, quote unquote natural habitats and humans. And of course, we are a fundamental piece of all of these habitats and all of these ecosystems. We're not separate from them. We interact with them, we depend on them completely, and we're a part of them in many complex sorts of interactions. And that, that really fascinates me as, as a scientist. Um, I'm part of a group called the Skagit Climate Science Consortium, and we're one of the, uh, with Mo, Mona, the uh, sponsors of this show, and the, the idea that um, uh, came to us from Mona was, was this idea of, of collaboration between art and science, which I think is a really fascinating area. We just don't see a lot of that type of collaboration because we come from very different worlds. We think, you know, as a, as a scientist, we think very differently from the way an artist think. And so it's a, it's a really interesting interaction and it's been fascinating for me as a participant in that to, to really take part of that. But, um, 
the thing that, that makes me really interested in the Skagit Climate Science Consortium specifically as a scientist is because I'm really interested in this connection between the, the natural and the, the habitat and the human communities because they're really together, they're part and parcel, and especially in the context of climate change, the impacts on human communities and they are, our resilience to these impacts really is very tightly intertwined with the ecosystems of which we're, we're a part. And I'm really interested in that interaction and part of our intent is to try to communicate some of those connections and, and interactions. And a lot of that, that resilience, when we talk about um, resilience, it's a concept that's really important in ecosystems and habitats and some are more or less resilient than others and, and so I like to look into those and why is, why is uh, certain habitats disappearing or changing rapidly and not resilient to changes that are happening around them and, and driving these and why are, are some resilient? Why are some able to absorb that and just keep going and keep uh, producing and being functional and, and supportive habitats and the same thing with human communities. We can be resilient communities or we can be communities that are just devastated when there is a catastrophe and not able to recover from that. And what are those characteristics of a resilient community and what can we do in the context of climate change to really build those, those characteristics of resilience intentionally? And that's what really uh, fascinates me, I think. Um, so that's who I am. And I want to pass the mic if this will go and, and uh, let you guys introduce yourself. It looks like Dave wasn't able to make it today for some reason, so I'm afraid you'll have to direct all your, your science-y things towards me. Um, uh, Susan. I'm Suze Wolf, and the books across the back uh, are my work. I brought a few. This is a series I've been working on for a while. Like uh, Rachel, I think it was mentioned, uh, I've been very interested in fire. Two years ago in the Surge exhibit, there were, uh, I can't remember now how many, 12, 14 trees, painted burn trees hanging in that same quarter. And that was my work. I spent a lot of time out in the woods, wandering around looking at things. Uh, like uh, Clarissa, I also saw these incredible uh, patterns that seemed to me like hieroglyphic, hieroglyphic scribblings and it seemed like a message we just weren't getting and quite natural to put them in book form. So that's the origin of that work. I've spent a lot of time, um, Dave Peterson was my advisor on, the, uh, on fire and forests when I said I'm really interested in bark beetles now. He referred me to an entomologist at the University of Washington. I also met an entomologist from the University of Montana uh, I was very honored she came to a residency. I was at, got on a plane, rented a car, tromped around in the woods with me for four days. So I've learned a great deal about bark beetles uh, in this time. I've also met a poet who is a botanist and a biologist who wrote poems. Normally my books are all form and materials, that's the story, but there are two over there that have words in them and they're the poet's words. So I think that's an adequate Introduction to me. Um, Alice, you I hope the cord's long enough. It's long enough. I can be Dave. Yeah, what is she? Hi, I'm 
Alice Duville. Uh, my work is downstairs. It's the large map installation. Um, I was very fortunate to work with John Riedel, uh, who is a glacier geologist with the National Park and Forest Service. And um, John was able to get me some historic maps. And so I kind of elected to make the whole show about, uh, the whole installation about um, historical approaches and what we can learn from them because there have been people here before who actually knew how to be resilient and live in the space and we need to pay more attention to that and I think we are starting to do that a little um, and we need to do that more. Um, I had taken a, several trips to Korea where I saw people starting to implement uh, responses to the large monsoon uh, rainwater problem that they've been having. And they also turned hist to historical solutions, which fortunately they could access a little more easily because the cultures hadn't uh, displaced one another. It was pretty much the same culture. Um, so there, there's that. Um, that, that's what the texts are a little about. It's also alerting us to what some of our historical assumptions are. Um, and the, it, the uh, animals are actually common animals up in the mountains. I didn't want to do endangered species because they may get wiped out. But I think we may actually trouble ourselves with the common ones that do the, the carrying of the um, ecosystem in lar by, by and large. And um, again, I drew some inspiration from a Korean artist on that who was concerned about the migration uh, pathways um, as a result of too much building going on. So um, I want to read one little thing that I just posted on my blog this morning that's from um, some work that was done at the, it's by curators at the Smithsonian about, I don't know, 25 years ago. Um, maybe a little more than that. Um, and it was about, it was a show that talked about uh, images from uh, American history that are basically what we think of as landscape painting in general. Um, so, you know, Frederick Remington and Moran and, um, you know, that lot. Um, and uh, one uh, uh, art historian uh, summed it up kind of this way because there was a lot of uh, scandal around the exhibition and uh, politicians were very unhappy that this work was uh, sort of labeled as suspect and, dis and that it was... Um, sort of hiding some of the issues that we should be thinking about in, in uh, the natural world. Um, I'm sorry, I'm doing this wrong. I'm terrible about this. You have to hold the mic. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm much more used to throwing my voice across the hall. Um, so I'll just read this one uh, thing, then we can talk about uh, what we're doing. Media anxiety over the political issues in the Smithsonian in exhibition, The West as America, reinterpreting images of the frontier 1820 to 1920, 
may, ang may augur trouble ahead. But considering the potent role of art in ritualizing nationalist myths, it seems that art communities have it in their hands to restore to view the visual evidence of different histories and dissenting meanings, and in the process, to revive critical intelligence in the public discussion of culture. And I think that that's what this show does. Um, so I'm going to uh, ask, we're, we're going to have a sort of a panel discussion here, so I have a few questions that I'm going to ask the, the panelists to kind of react to, and I hope that this will be a conversation amongst all of us and with the audience, and I hope that you guys feel free to ask me questions too as a scientist, but I'm, I'm really interested in this, this interaction of, of um, science and art, so I guess just to start, I'm interested in the, the, the process that you guys went through in terms of interacting with scientists. So what was that process? What were the ways in which you interacted with the scientists and how did that inform or affect your, your interpretation of that science and, and making it into a, um, your work? And I'll just, um, since the artists that I worked with are not up here, I'll start out and just talk about how I interacted with some of the artists. Um, we, we, I went out with a few of the artists and we went, uh, put our hip boots on and went walking around in the tidal marshes in the Skagit Delta to look at what tidal marshes look like, how they function, and the ways in which climate change might be affecting them. And, and we were really doing uh, something you mentioned, which was looking at these very common species, not at the rare species, but at these, these sort of species that are, play really major roles that we tend to sort of ignore because they're so common all over the place. And in tidal marshes in this area, on the river deltas, it's a lot of bulrushes. There's uh, several species of bulrush plants, and they form the, the, the core of that tidal marsh. And they're super important in these ecosystems because they're the base of the food web. They, they do the photosynthesis that grabs the carbon, turns it into food, Everything else in the food web in these ecosystems depends on that source of carbon for food and for, to sustain them. And so they're really important. And one of the things that I've seen in some, in some places is that these marshes are changing and some of the, the causes of those changes related to, to climate change impacts. So for example, in uh, 2015 we had really low river flows because the precipitation pattern was what we think is gonna be about average in about the year 2050, which is to say that we had actually about an average amount of total precipitation for the year, but it was really warm that year, very warm. And in the winter, there was a big shift, a much larger proportion of that total precipitation came as snow, I mean as rain, rather than snow. So there was much more rain, less snow. That meant the water ran off really quickly, and it meant that there wasn't much snowpack. So in the summer, when the tidal marsh plants are growing, the rivers were at record low levels for several months in a row. And that, what that did was it invited the, it allowed the salt in the salt water to penetrate up higher into the estuary and it drove the salt content in the soils really high. That had a big effect on the plants. They, they produced 35 to 40% less of that above ground plant matter 
that summer. So it had a big effect on the entire food web as a result. Because that's, remember, that's the base of the food web that feeds the salmon, that feeds the uh, hundreds of thousands of shorebirds that pass through here every year, that feeds um, the, the waterfowl, some of the snow geese. The snow geese go there and they eat the rhizomes of the bulrushes and the estuaries. So it has a big effect. How much of that plant matter gets produced in a year has a big effect on the whole system. So we were talking about that when we were in the field with the, the artist. You'll see in the alcove downstairs, one of the artists really reacted quite a bit to that idea of the, the bulrushes and the salinity and the potential effects on the, the, the system. We also talked about uh, tiny things, so diatoms that grow on the sediment surface. One of the artists in the downstairs in that corner really latched onto that idea and we spent some time with a scanning electron microscope looking, blowing up, you know, um, 4,000 times these little images of tiny microscopic algae to look at their role and they play a really big role in, in helping to cement the sediment surface together and they photosynthesize so they're a key part of the food web. Um, so she was really reacting to, to these very common ubiquitous kinds of things in our systems that are changing, that are reacting, responding to climate change in, in, a, in a, a number of ways. So um, I think that, that sense of, of, of reaction, all these different parts re react and respond, and a lot of those ways that individual organisms respond, we really don't know yet how they're going to do that. And so there's, there's lots of kind of surprises ahead. Um, so I'll pass the mic and maybe you guys can talk a little bit about specifically how you interacted with your, your scientists and what that process looked like. Uh, can we turn that mic on as well? Is, there, is, it, is it possible to have? Cool. All right, that way we can share around. So anybody here want to respond? Um, so I work with Dave, um, forest science guy. Um, I think for me, Dave was, um, well, he, he took me to his, he's got about a 20 acre property uh, with forest that he's been sort of nurturing and, and, and I guess studying as well where he lives. He took me there and we tromped around, um, which is really great. Um, but I think in terms of my process, he was really um, helpful in, I felt like what I, what, what, the thing that in a way I maybe felt that I needed him the most for was to make sure that I wasn't making any mistakes. And that may have been a little bit more of an issue perhaps for me with what I was doing because in that animation there's some biochemistry <coughs> and it's a bit incredibly, it's about as basic as you can get, but there's some stuff in there that I was actually sort of trying to explain. So I wanted, I, I wanted his help to make sure I hadn't oversimplified too much and that kind of thing. I think another thing that he helped me with that maybe I didn't foresee exactly was something about the way scientists think, and this wasn't really explicit, but I would notice after I talked to him that he had framed something that I was maybe feeling about more than I was thinking about, like fire, and kind of my emotional reaction to that, which is partly also especially as we all know, huge fires in California, that's been quite personal to me. I've had people in my family closely affected by that. So seeing that the way that he as a scientist would think about these phenomena, it wasn't exactly that he would check me with that, but he would provide kind of a little bit of framework or parameters within which I could say, oh, okay, there is a, a sort of a valid, less emotional way to consider what's happening here. And I found that useful 
And I think it ended up probably affecting the way I did the animation a little bit. I might have taken it in a little direction, different direction if I hadn't been working with him. So since I worked with three scientists, uh, I, I was on this series already. These are two earlier uh, for, uh, books besides the ones that are back there. I do want to point out there's a video on the wall also. Uh, when this is over, the audio will be back on. That's fairly explanatory. One of the problems with books is an object is they sit in the case and you can't really see what's uh, the, the totality of them. And what I found working with the scientists did for me, I knew a certain amount already. I had done a lot of uh, internet searches discovered barkbeetles.org, which is a pretty good site, if you like uh, beetle galleries. And it really deepened and enriched my understanding of the phenomenon and the importance. Uh, it's, it affects its sort of second order um, consequence of climate change. I received ideas about um, you know, modeling of dispersion, uh, the way beetles arrange themselves up and down the same tree, um, things that I really didn't understand just from looking at images or um, beetle galleries in, in life. And that affected what I started thinking about making. So uh, both in that video and in the displays back there, some of those take their point of inspiration from scientific papers about trying to model uh, impacts from Landsat uh, satellite imagery, others from um, actual uh, data about the spread of certain species at certain locations. Um, so I did mention spatial niche partitioning already. That's different beetles on the same tree uh, according to which ones can use the most or the fewest resources of the tree. So it changed the kind of thing I thought of doing. So I'm uh, very, uh, feel very privileged by that. Um, and I, 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 you know, as my husband occasionally says to me, you have this enormous need to be right. So, <laughs> so yes, emotionally I find it uh, satisfying to, to know that there is science under what I'm doing. <laughs> Anyone other else want to comment? I'll, I'll, I'll do okay, you'll have to move again, I think. Yeah, <clears throat> Uh, working with John was really great because it was kind of like um, uh, old times. Uh, I had done a residency up at North Cascades National Park in 2006, and um, the uh, my focus was more on what were people doing up there. Um, um, and so I talked with Bob Merendorf uh, a lot about um, the sites that he had found and, and you know how people connected with each other and how they really lived up there not all year round they moved up and down um, and um, I, so I was really intrigued with how and, and oh I, don't, I know what else I want to say during that time um, it was in the uh, fall there was a huge flood that wiped out uh, Highway 20 and I was really impressed because the year before there had been a big flood, I think it was the year before, a big flood um, that also wiped out part of the trail that goes over <laughs> to Stahican. 
And I was really, I'm always kind of interested in how the landscape changes and that it's not timeless, like we like to, you know, pretend that it is. But um, that drama of Highway 20 meant we couldn't get out. <laughs> and it, it set up a very interesting uh, response on the part of the highway department, of course, they really hurried. It wasn't just us, it was the whole access to everything up there. And that made me realize not only how people can mobilize, but how we need to stop thinking about how we can just control the space. So John and I talked about this kind of stuff and that geological processes, not just erosion, but you know, mountain uplifting and glaciers and all this other stuff, um, are really something that we can contend with and learn about living with. So that was sort of the, the historical and, and long-term. Um, one of the things that, that I'm really interested in, in in this process is just the under, understanding how other people think and approach life and approach problems and, and concepts. And to me that, for, on a very personal level, was, was something that I found really fascinating in this whole process because I'm a scientist and so I approach things, uh, you know, facts, models, computers, linear, uh, and I also see a lot of science talks and I know that um, scientists, including myself, are not good at all about communicating and talking about science to people who aren't scientists. We're great at talking to each other. Um, and the words that we use, you know, a lot of them are, are, are specific to our fields, and so they're very technical. But even a lot of words that, that on the face of it sound the same, like storm or storm surge, uh, mean very, very different things to scientists than they do to most people. Um, and so I'm really interested in, in that kind of interaction between scientists and non-scientists. And this particular project, I think, was, was fascinating to me because of that, that opportunity to really dive deep with people who, who think very differently than a scientist does. And, and I think the scientists, um, and this is maybe a question that we can all kind of react to, but why, why have we done such a very bad job talking to the American public in the, in the U.S. about climate change and about its impacts and about the, the process of it happening and about its, its reality? Um, you know, far more than 98% of scientists, climate scientists, are, are fundamentally on board. You know, we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of experts. And we completely failed at that. And you know, there's many reasons for that, uh, political and certain stakeholders who have a lot of financial stake in the matter. Um, one of the issues I think has been that scientists just have not been good at, at all at communicating. And so I'm fascinated by this, issue, this question of communication. And I'm interested in, in hearing from people about, um, about communication and about this idea of, of this artist and scientist collaboration on communication, and also even more specifically about the, the process of communication between the artist and the scientist, and what that was, uh, what that was like, what was um, 
since none of you guys actually worked with me in this show, you can be forthright and open up. What was, what was really frustrating about working with a scientist and communicating with a scientist um, and, and that, that whole kind of experience, so just kind of that, that communication experience and how do we interpret this and so, so what do you I can I can respond, but not <clears throat> to the last question so much because I didn't have any frustrating experiences at all <laughs> working with the scientists. But just the um, okay, so you know we created that room of water that's downstairs that you see, you know, when you come in, and what we learned working with the scientists. Well, first of all, what is the 100-year flood? Right, the 100-year flood, you know, is a misnomer in so many different ways. But we're talking about a major flood that had, you know, at a certain point in time, had a one in 100 chance of happening in a given year, which is now one in 22. So, 100-year flood is not a valid term anymore, but it is. A term that's still used, you know, by FEMA and flood insurance and so on. Um, but one thing that we learned from the scientists um, that we were working with is, well, it's really, it's really not the depth so much as it's the extent and the frequency. And um, we we have, you know, we don't have deep water so much as we have like vast expanses of water that are going to be happening more frequently. And um, and, and that was like really important information, but it was also, um, we had to think about what we could, what we could communicate. And it wasn't, and it, that was a journey from, from the data and the modeling that was a long time period. It's not like a direct translation as maybe a diagram would be. In fact, like the map that's on the Scattered Climate Science Consortium uh, website, which is beautiful science illustration, science communication, interactive. I encourage you to, if you haven't yet, to um, find your address, you know, on this map. <laughs> 2040, if the levees, you know, uh, are breached on one side versus the other side, what happens? Um, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's a beautiful piece of science communication. But our piece, our art piece was really not that. It was something else. And, um, and it's an experience that's meant to sort of um, make the science communication more palpable, more real, more concrete, more affecting, more get you, you know? And, and so it was, communicating the communication <laughs> that we were about. Yeah. Um, so it's like layers, you know. Yeah. Um, I guess I want to talk um, a little bit about the emotional aspect of um, connecting with scientists. Um, I had a great experience connecting with Dave and um, you know, brought in information and things that I hadn't thought about. Um, and like you were speaking with Dave, his ability to kind of, to reform and to redirect um, what can be an emotional, like when those, our emotions come in, we tend to 
maybe whitewashed there. We, we, we generalize. Um, but what I want to speak to is, um, is fear. Um, as an artist with not a lot of scientist, scientific background, not a lot of research, I was aware that when I interacted with Dave, I brought these preconceived feelings of, of fear, of inadequacy, of being afraid that I was going to say the wrong thing, make the wrong decision, not understand. And I think that that's one of the places where the communication is breaking down. I think that, I mean, in, in a lot of different things going on in our world, um, people are afraid to speak up. They're, we're afraid to ask questions. We're, we're so caught up in our egos that we're afraid to look stupid. And we also have systems that, that reinforce that. Um, and so that's a place where I would love to see change, is for us to be vulnerable, for us to give compassion to each other, and hopefully through that, to be able to transfer the information. That's really great. So we are at 3 p.m. and we've got lots of questions to go through, but we just don't have time. Uh, so we don't want to keep you too much longer, but I do want to provide an opportunity for some questions from, from you guys if you have questions on for any of the artists or, or myself that you'd like to go into. Yes? It seems like a big stakeholder in all of this is big business. And going back to your statement about how scientists haven't communicated this well, why, I mean, what are the attempts to show the impact that this will have on business? I mean, business has so much power in this country. And I'm just wondering, you know, what what are scientists doing to, <laughs> to make business understand that they're, this is going to be cataclysmic, yeah. you know? I, I think that's a, um, a really good point. And I think certainly in these years right now that we're in right now, I think a lot of the, the uh, progress and moving ahead in terms of climate change response in, in the, our society is going to come through local communities and through businesses. And there are businesses, uh, that, there's a, a lot of businesses that are totally, you know, they understand the impact of climate change and that it's going to be impacting them their bottom line and the way that they do business. And so there are a lot of things that are, are happening there. One, um, I'm not directly involved in at all, but the, as you might imagine, the insurance industry is particularly sensitive to what's happening. And I don't know how the whole system works, but there are a relatively few number of really huge insurance companies that are called reinsurers. They're usually names that you've never heard of and they insure all the insurance companies. And so they're, it's kind of a weird system. I don't understand how it works. But they're the ones who end up being the, the bottom line. And they are extremely sensitive to this. And, and they have a lot of scientists working with them to try to understand how is this going to happen, uh, impact the things that they insure over time, you know, how fast do these things start to change, and how do we, and then of course they're, Approaches, how, how did they start to factor that in into the way that they price to the, the insurers that they market? Um, 
And so there, there's, there's, you know, different industries I think are tackling this in different ways, um, and working with scientists to do that. So I have found some sources for hope from the business sector and people who are very focused on that and, and realize that that's, and I think that's really one of the big levers that we can pull on in terms of impacting the politicians who are really slow to react to things is they react to the, the, the people who pay them. And many of those people are large business um, people. And so I think that's something that, that we as a community can really kind of focus on as a, as a way to have change, not just in terms of um, interacting locally with our local governments and our, and our representatives, elected representatives, but working with the companies and, and, and uh, asking them to step up to the plate and, and push the envelope. Other questions? Yes? Wait a minute. I have something okay. to say to this. Yeah. I think one of the problems also is, is that um, our society has inherited a sense of private property that um, the Skagit River really challenges that notion of how rational that is. And um, we, we can think a little bit more about how we have to get together. You know, when you were talking about the fear, that, that isolation is part of the problem. And if I, you know, have my own um, piece of property and I stick to it, I'm not going to make it, actually. It's not, not with this kind of change. Question. Uh, it was a comment to the economics question that um, in, as scientists, there's not training in economics, and so we're not like, trained to communicate directly with business owners, industry, to say, how this affects your bottom line, your, your accounting. Um, but there are organizations that are rising in the CDOC Society right now. We're working with, um, with Earth Economics, which I uh, in Tacoma, to actually put a dollar figure on the presence of the southern resident killer whales in the Salish Sea. Like, what does that mean to our state, to local businesses um, economically? So they, they translate things exactly like what Roger studies into what does this cost to this region? How much money does this bring in to keep this natural, what we call a resource, right, um, natural and here? So that's that conversation is starting to happen thanks to people who are making that, that bridge between money, which is what most people in our culture are run, running on, right, with decision making and, uh, and the science behind it. But, we're, we're lacking those skills as, as scientists to, to be able to communicate that effectively. So we need that. I just have to add that the initiative that we just defeated, <laughs> 1631, was the, a really, really important way to um, put that cost onto businesses for the carbon uh, that we emit in the atmosphere. So unfortunately, that was defeated, but um, I'm, I'm sure it's going to come back. Yeah. Other questions from the audience? Um, well, uh, after going through this process, all of you up there, I'm curious if you, um, if you, if, if you've had like more ideas about other sort of untapped opportunities for collaboration harvest and scientists um, that we could, just, uh, in addition to like art exhibits in a gallery, um, 
Cynthia, you've already done some. <laughs> well, I, I think I need to hear the question again. What other opportunities for... Um, yeah. have, you, have you thought of any other ways to have these kinds of collaborations um, that aren't exhibits in an art gallery? I mean, the, the piece that we have downstairs is temporarily housed in <laughs> this... Um, we we kind of see that piece as a relic of a of a happening or an action or a performance or an uh, environmental interaction. They're public. It's a it's a framework for public events in a way. So it will leave the museum and then go back into other um, settings where people will interact with it, walk inside, think about. <coughs> what it would be like to be in that setting in a flood event with water that's, that's, that's 10 feet high, what that would feel like. So that's, that's a roving um, situation. I mean, I think inside the museum and outside the museum, like there's no, um, the more the merrier. The more communication we can have about the changing climate, especially. <coughs> Um, um, artists working together with scientists, with policy people, with environmentalists. Um, it's a kind of major cultural change that is needed and all sectors of society have to work together. I was going to say that uh, books uh, make a pretty good addition to libraries too. <laughs> <laughs> Questions? Uh, yes, I just I don't know about CERT. I don't know how this um, panel came about, and if this is something unique and new, or is this a common thing that is done elsewhere? What what um, led to this uh, panel? Yeah, I as far as I know, this is not a common thing that's done in very many places. Um, it, the surge show started here. This is the third surge show. Uh, the first one was a weekend long here at Mona. The second one the next year was a week long. Uh, Mona has these quarter long shows that they put on and, and so it was sort of sandwiched in between shows. And uh, we really decided that, that after the last one that, that it was exciting that the public, people were really responding to this idea and we decided to really put in uh, the effort in Mona to their credit that just amazes me, decided to make this a quarter-long thing. So this is you know, one of their full shows. And we decided uh, to take a year off to allow for a longer period of time for the artists and scientists to work together. So rather than you guys having to ingest all of this data and stuff and flip it around in, a, in the matter of a couple or three months in new artwork, which was incredibly challenging. Um, there was a much longer time for the conversation to happen and for you guys to sort of internalize that and respond to it and produce art that is, is really, to me, just amazing, the art that we have here. Um, so this is the third event, and I hope it's the, the third of many more to come uh, because this has been just, for me personally, it's just been incredibly rewarding and, and enjoyable, and I think all of us probably feel that way as well, and, and it seems to really um, 
engage something in the community in terms of that conversation. So hopefully it will be one of many. But um, should I turn this over? Are you? I, I, I want to just say one last thing. There is actually a climate museum now in New York City. I'm sure it has something to do with what they endured with Hurricane Sandy. And it's privately funded. It's not a publicly operated. I mean, you know, it's not receiving public funds. And, and go ahead. Is, is there another question? Because we don't need to. I just, I just wanted to say there, there was a group from um, Chile that came up this year. And they were a group of artists and scientists that were together. I, I only found out about it right at the very end. And there was a conversation in Seattle with one um, another person that has these art conversations. And I didn't get to go to it, but there is this other group. And there are other groups throughout. But having participated in this, um, it is one of the best ways to get artists, scientists, and public. The Venn diagram that the consortium put together is exactly right to get that communication going and more talking and more information out for the program. Okay, I'm kind of an interloper here. I'm from Olympia. Uh, I came up because I met Mary Ashton, and uh, I'm an artist too, and this just absolutely fascinated me. And I tried to find anything down in my neck of the woods, and you guys are. You've got it all, all over anybody else. I was very, very impressed. And so I feel that I'm not the only one. There's always more lemmings in the sea besides me. And so I would like to know, is there any anybody, you know, if I want to contact somebody, I want to kind of see how, what the possibilities are creating something like this in the South Bay, because we've got a lot of similar problems that you folks do. And I have children and grandchildren, and I would like to leave them an environment in which they can uh, find a way to be with it uh, and trying to help them understand you've got to be a part of it. And so that's kind of my question. Maybe you can ask that afterwards if, if uh, there's information. Sure. On that. I, I think that you could uh, contact um, either the Mona and both and um, Mona and, and the Skagit Climate Science Consortium, and we can certainly help with ideas of, of how these kind of events come together and the process of, of making these links. Um, so either one would be fine, and I can give you my contact information afterwards. Um, that'd be great. I feel like that's what, you know, we have the, the squally down there. We have all yeah. kinds of things going on. I think yeah. nobody's working at the level that you folks work at. I'm truly very, very impressed. And I've yeah. come away with some wonderful ideas for my own work and things I like doing that um, I wouldn't have had today if you hadn't Taking yeah. all the time and effort to make this happen. And, and you want to invite all the legislators. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. It would be great to make this a, a traveling show around Puget Sound. Maybe, maybe we should, uh, maybe we should make this a traveling show. Well, it's not a bad idea because you, you, you I, from not being a part of this at all and coming in and watching, I am very, very impressed with the way I didn't know the other science wasn't here, but. Um, we're just two different sides of the same same brain, yeah. left and right. Yeah. And I think a whole system design is where you're trying to go. Yeah. And this is the beginning stages of it. And I think it's really exciting because this is how the, how the world adapts and we adapt with it. Make sure we stay here and have places for all life forms, not just us. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks very much. That was a great comment. Thank Chris, you. did you want to end this? Oh, yeah. I just wanted to say, and I, I'm kind of piggybacking on you because you, you said my heart. <laughs> That's all I work with. <laughs> I've been coming to these since they began. And I remember, I think it was the 
what it's every time what has happened to me is that I, I'm not a left brain person, I'm an artist. And I would read stuff and I'd get all linear. And then I would see a piece of art and it would I could speak. It would just go straight to the heart. And that's what art does. It bypasses all the little judgments and prejudices and whatever. So this panel and this form is absolutely essential. I think that this is a microcosm of what's needed to get others involved. It's a safe place to do that. I thank you so much. You know, before we end, you know, first of all, once again, thank you very much. And we are honored to have this special show. And, you know, with our education department, we have a great group of people that do Mona Link on the schools and so forth, and we build upon all these programs. You know, and right now, you know, Mona is in a situation where we're raising money for various things, but all the biggest grant push right now is straight through education. And the idea of being able to have these kinds of programs is part of what the education program is all about. So it will continue in, in some facet. Uh, but before I forget, there are other things. On December the 1st, Surge is having an open house. It starts at 11, it ends at 5, and it is full of family and adult interactions. It's also an opportunity and they're inviting people to come and knit with them, starting with age six. Then, uh, so that's gonna be a full day of Sturge activities. And all of this stuff is on your chair or it's downstairs. But then also on December the 8th, we're doing an activity project with the Skagit Watershed. Um, and that they're involved in doing a Luminaire project. And then on January the 5th, everybody remember that, because that's the closing of the show. And we're going to do another artist and scientist panel to wrap up the 2018-2019 topic. So please come back. As always, Mission Spree and Soul, all of our programs. So thank you very much for coming.